So we have been going through the pastoral epistles the last several weeks, and we've come as far as 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, we left off there last week. So that's where we'll pick up this morning. You can turn your Bibles there to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul is now going to look down through the years, and he's going to, with the eyes of a prophet, tell Timothy what is to come in what he calls the last days. And we'll look at the last days here in just a second. But uh, this chapter is really a prophetic appeal to Timothy, um, and it's giving Timothy his charge in light of future circumstances. So we'll look at this a little bit closer. As we move through this chapter, you'll see three main things. You'll see an explanation of the future in the first few verses, Later, you'll see an example from the past. He brings up the sorcerers of Egypt and an exhortation for the present, exhorting Timothy and how he should respond to everything he has just told him. So starting in verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, But know this, that in these last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of God, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. A big run-on sentence there, and we'll see another Pretty sizable list, not quite as long as this one later. Uh, But we are going to go back through this and look at it a little more carefully. He says in the first verse, in the last days. Now, when he says last days, he's talking about the period from when Jesus was on the earth till the end. Okay, These are, and we are living in them, the last days. Um, And we see this in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, this is saying, basically, that the period of time we're living in right now, um, this is characterized by the coming of Jesus. So after Jesus came to the world, this last period, this last dispensation before the end is what we're living in, okay? And um, we know that God has revealed himself in different ways throughout history. And that verse in Hebrews kind of outlines that for us. Uh, But in these last days, he has revealed himself through his son and through his word. And we will look at both of these things this morning. Um, As we read on through this list again, you'll see that it's very descriptive of our society right now, and so much so that it's a little bit terrifying. Um, But it is also going to serve as uh, kind of encouragement to us that, yes, what we're reading here is true. And Paul had written this to Timothy just several years after Christ had departed from the world. So long ago, he was able to predict by the Holy Spirit what would be happening today and in future years, of course. 
so that does uh, instill some confidence in us that what we are reading, what we are studying, and putting our time towards is true. Um, and, by the way, it's out of this world. Um, it literally comes from outside of our time-space continuum that we live in. He says that perilous times will come. I thought this word perilous was interesting. And it's used also to describe the gathering demoniac in Matthew 8.28. And there it's translated as fierce. But this perilous or fierce can mean hard to bear, troublesome, or dangerous. So these are the kind of times that we are going into. Verse 2, he says, For men will be lovers of themselves. And I don't believe that we've ever seen a time in this country when people have been more obsessed with themselves. And of course, I haven't been around long enough to, to really know either way, but some of you might be able to, to confirm that right now, uh, society is just consumed with the self. Uh, there's self-help books. Uh, we hear all this talk about self-love. Um, and, you know, loving myself is probably one of the last things that I would want to do. You know, because there's really nothing in me that I, I want to love. Um, it's dark. I am dark on the inside. Um, and that is just my natural tendency because I am a fallen human being. Um, and it's the same for all you, so, you know, <laughs> just going to throw that in there. Uh, but self-love is not something that I want to have. Um, now, yeah, take care of yourself. You know, do things occasionally to take care of yourself. But this self-love is taken to a whole nother level. Um, in fact, Jesus tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That is what we are instructed to do, not to love ourselves. We love Jesus, and we love what he's done for us. Um, and it's only by that that we are freed from ourselves. And truly, that is the only way. And I've used this quote from A.W. Tozer at least two other times so far, and I'm going to read it again because I love it so much. Um, and it fits in perfectly with this idea of self-love or denying ourselves. He says, This, what shall we do, is the deep heart cry of every man who suddenly realizes that he is an usurper and sits on a stolen throne. However painful, it is precisely this acute moral consternation that produces true repentance and makes a robust Christian after the penitent has been dethroned and has found forgiveness and peace through the gospel. I'll reword that for you. When you realize that you're a dirty sinner and that you are sitting on the throne that belongs to God, that realization brings repentance. And it's that repentance that takes you off of the throne and allows you to set God back on that throne in your life, giving Christ back that preeminent position in your life that you've tried to assert. That's what he's saying. And if you are caught up in self-love, in loving what you are in the flesh, 
then you don't have that moral consternation that says, hey, you need to get off of this throne. This does not belong to you. It belongs to someone greater. Uh, And so self-love is dangerous. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. You know, there's not a whole lot that needs to be said there. Um, I think, I mean, I know that our society is run by wealthy men who want just a little more. And it trickles down all the way to the poorest. They just want a little more. And we're all kind of stricken by this consumerism. We all want something. I'm not guiltless of this either, but we all want this one more thing that's going to bring happiness to our lives. And you just have to realize that that is not the case. That one more car, that bigger house is not going to bring you the happiness. Jesus should not be replaced by money. You see, every man has a ruler, has a master, and every man is a slave of someone or something. The trick in life is finding a good master. Money is a cruel master. Money is a great servant. Self is a cruel master. I don't want to be serving myself all the time. That gets ugly real quick. But Jesus is the only good master. Lovers of money, boasters, proud. Now, we've seen pride glorified in our society. Um, In certain communities, more so than others. But pride has been hijacked and it has been turned into something positive by our culture. Pride is not talked about in the Bible as being positive. Pride is something that is destructive. The Bible says that pride comes before a fall. Okay, so this pride, this being puffed up with pride, uh, we know is what took Satan down. Satan, being an angel in heaven, was puffed up with pride, wanted to ascend above God, and that is what took him down. Pride comes before destruction. And, you know, it doesn't matter to me what context this pride is in. It's talked about here as being negative. Uh, It's just not godly. Okay? And further, don't be prideful of your sin. Don't be proud of your sin. It doesn't matter what it is. We are to cast that so far from us. And it it should not be an identity to a Christian. You're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Your sin should not categorize you if you're a Christian because you've been freed from that. An alcoholic Christian doesn't exist. It's not your sin that gives your identity. We should be placing our identity in Christ. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal. Now, we've all seen the, the video games, the movies. They're brutal, okay? And I think that can be left there. Uh, but 
a lot of these things that are extremely pervasive and mainstream in our culture are brutal. And that's how we live. Uh, it kind of seems to me like modern gladiators. Um, that's just personal opinion. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, again, that idea of being puffed up with pride, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, since the beginning, man has been entrapped in this lie that if you can just be pleasured, if you can just have something, if you can just experience something, then your life will be great. And this pleasure. Um, in fact, Paul, the man who's writing this, spoke to Epicurean philosophers at Mars Hill. This is in Acts 17 when he gave this sermon on Mars Hill. And he was talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans, believing that pleasure and the pursuit thereof was the chief purpose of existence. You were just awesome if you lived for pleasure. Hedonism, right? And he's saying here, well, no, you don't glorify pleasure. You're glorifying God as a Christian. Um, and I'm sure that he was writing partly in response to the Epicurean philosophy that still would have been fairly alive at this point. And to be completely honest, it's pretty alive today. It's just taken different forms. You see, we've had these same entrapments from the very beginning, and they just change form ever so often. Uh, Mammon, the god of wealth, of money in the Old Testament, still around, but he doesn't go by Mammon anymore. He goes by Cadillac or Corvette, right? So it's these old ideas, they're just repackaged to fit a new generation. There's nothing new. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. So verse 5 kind of continues this list of traits of men in the latter days, the last days. And it says that they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. That's an interesting phrase. And I believe he's talking about what we know now as this alternative spirituality or this new age movement that we've been seeing. Um, and again, new age is anything but new. It's repackaged ideas from, it's like a conglomeration of different religions all packaged up together. And the key is they deny God. They try to take all of this spirituality, bring it together under one roof called new age and deny God. So what do you get? You get all of this mumbo jumbo that has no creator behind it. It can be mixed with science, can be mixed with culture. There's heavy influence from Eastern mysticism, Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, and even some Judaism. And then some, throw in some Gnosticism in there. Okay. 
It's just everything besides God. It's all the spirituality you can handle besides God. And that is what we're seeing um, invade our culture, having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's this outward form of godliness but denies the creator. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Sounds really weird, okay? But it's not as weird as it sounds, and I'll boil it down for you in this. He's talking about a spiritual snake oil salesman. These guys that go around parading this new sort of spirituality that they've found, saying this is the key to your happiness. This is the key to eternal lives, even. Um, But denying the creator. Again, the same people that we're talking about all through this list. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, These people can be women or men. He uses an example as a woman here. They're led away by their lack of roots in the scripture. They are easy to sway in the wind. You know, palm trees can withstand crazy winds. They'll bend over, but they won't be uprooted. But if their roots are not allowed to dig deep into the soil, they'll be blown away with a slight gust. Okay, and that's what he's talking about here. These spiritual snake oil salesmen um, can lead those astray who are not rooted in the word. Now, this verse 8 is the example from Exodus that I mentioned at the beginning. He says, Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So, if you want to, well, you don't have to turn to Exodus 7. But that is where you'll find the story of the plagues in Egypt. That's what Paul is referring back to here. And this Janus and Jambres are two of the sorcerers that the Pharaoh called in to try to replicate the miracles of God. When Moses was plaguing Egypt, um, of course, through the power of God, um, Pharaoh brought in these guys to try to replicate these miracles. They were able to replicate certain miracles. They could call frogs out of the Nile. They could turn the water to blood. There were some things that they could do with their power, notably from Satan. There were certain miracles that they could not do. Um, In Exodus 8, it starts off with the account of the plague of the frogs. You see that God called frogs out of the Nile to infest the land of Egypt. And it happened. Pharaoh said, come on, Janus and Jambres, I want you to do this. Why he wanted more frogs, I don't know. Doesn't make sense to me. But he wanted to replicate it. Um, I guess sort of as a power grab or something. So they were able to call frogs out of the Nile. The next plague that Moses sends is the lice. 
the Bible says that the dust of the earth was turned to lice. You had something that was non-living, the dust of Egypt, and it was turned into something that was living, the lice. This was something that Janus and Jambres could not replicate. It was a miracle of creation. Non-life into life. No one has that power except the one true God. They could not replicate these miracles of creation. And there were others that they couldn't replicate as well. Um, it makes me thankful that we serve the one true creator um, and the creator of the universe. And the point of Paul mentioning these two guys, Janus and Jambres, the sorcerers, is just an illustration of these falsely spiritual uh, purveyors of anything spiritual in nature. Have at it, guys. This is spirituality. Um, so they are an illustration of what is coming now and what is already here. We have these guys going around uh, replicating miracles and very much leading people astray. Um, so I would... I would warn you to continue uh, to be aware of these things happening um, and always test what you see, what you hear against scripture. That is our little measuring rod. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in, at Antioch and Iconium at, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. And this is the second list I was talking about. Okay, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith. Timothy had been a witness to Paul's doctrine, what he teaches. And we've talked about doctrine plenty in the last several weeks. It's the core tenets of what we believe. Timothy has witnessed Paul's doctrine. He's witnessed his manner of life, how he lives. You got your doctrine, you got how you live. And Timothy has witnessed Paul's purpose, why he bears up under this persecution that he talks about why he perseveres in his trials. Timothy has seen these things from Paul. He says, you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. Now, he lists these three places. Timothy was from the area of Lystra, okay? And Lystra was right next to Iconium, just a few miles apart there in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, um, fairly central, a little bit southwest of central Turkey would be this area. And Lystra could have been where Timothy was converted by Paul. We know that Paul uh, refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. Okay? And that, that could mean that 
Paul actually had a work in Timothy's salvation. Okay, and this could be where it happened here in Lystra, uh, in his hometown. But I think that Paul just lists these places as an example, like, hey, you know what I've been through because you've seen me here and you've seen the persecutions that have come on me in these places. You witness them. So you know that I'm not making these things up. And he adds, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. He didn't know that he would be able to write that verse as he was going through these persecutions. He didn't know that. Just like when they were singing in the dungeon. They didn't read the chapter in the Bible that they were about to write. They didn't know that the angel was going to come in there and bust them out. Okay, They had faith during these times and they persevered. They bore up under this persecution. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Okay. Promises of God. Here we go. This is one that we tend to overlook. Whether conscious or subconscious, I don't know. Maybe some of both. We love to to read about the blessings, the promises that God gives us of, you know, blessings. And we love to look at the, the Old Testament patriarchs, look at their promises and apply them to ourselves, which is not good. Don't do that. Uh, we, we love promises from God. This is one that we might not love so much. But if we really understood it, I think we could appreciate it so much more than we do at the surface. You see, these persecutions forge you into who you are. They're the resistance. I talked a few weeks ago about working out and the physical resistance that's required to build muscle tissue. It's a similar thing for your spiritual fitness. It takes a resistance that you have to push through to build a spiritual buffness. And that is what you're getting with these persecutions, with these trials. It's resistance. Because when we get to heaven, there's no more resistance. Nothing more. That is where you will be for eternity. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But... I don't want you to be disheartened because there is something much better that comes after the persecution. We know that the life with Christ on this earth will be terribly difficult. Um, And there is something better after this life on earth. And I very much look forward to that um, and being set free from this bondage of decay, this entropy that we're all stuck in right now. Verse 13, he says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. 
in 13, he says, it's going to get worse and worse. These men are going to get worse and worse. Um, And that is just the fact of the matter. Um, It is going to progressively get worse, probably before it gets better. But it definitely will get worse before the end. Now, is there going to be a revival of some sort in our lifetime? I don't know. Um, I pray that there will be. You know, part of me wants to see that. I want to live that and just praise God for that. Uh, And part of me wants to wrap this up pretty quick. So, you know, I'm torn, but there are things uh, that I'm seeing that would point towards a revival. So I do have that hope. But truly, either way, um, I know where my destination is, and I'm excited to get there. We'll grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. The deceptions, again, that are coming are going to be almost unbearable. We know that if we are kept in Christ, we won't be deceived. But they will try. And the deceiving is going to get worse and worse. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, since we know that these evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse, as Christians, what can we do about that? Well, one thing that Paul gives Timothy, and that we can also certainly learn from, he tells him, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of. What has Timothy learned and been assured of? At the very beginning of this same letter, Second Timothy, Paul points out that Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice had taught him the scripture. So he knows these things. They have imparted to him knowledge and assurance. And I think it's interesting that at this point, Timothy would have been taught the Old Testament, not the New Testament that was being written currently. There might have been a few letters that he was, you know, he had heard of later on in his life, but his mother and his grandmother taught him the Old Testament, which we know points directly to Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 15, Paul says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Timothy would have been taught the Old Testament. Scripture pointing to the coming Messiah. That is effective for Timothy. Okay, don't dismiss the Old Testament has a bunch of stories. And we'll we'll talk about that here in just a second as well. And then from childhood, pointing back to his mother and grandmother, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
Scripture contains the full revelation necessary for salvation. We don't have to go on a wild goose chase looking for something extra. We don't have to look for Jesus and fill in the blank. Jesus or fill in the blank. You can stop with Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the only way. There is no other name by which we can be saved from the mouth of Jesus himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through me. You can't go around him or beside him. You have to go through him. And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, the the Gnostics of the early church that would have been around this time were teaching that knowledge was the key to salvation. Okay, And John, in his first, second, and third epistles, wrote directly to this thought of knowledge being necessary for salvation. He wrote in response to this Gnostic thought. Um, And we see a little bit of that here as well. Uh, But we know that knowledge does not equal salvation. In fact, everything you need to know is housed in our Bible. That is what is necessary for salvation. Verse 16 and 17 are two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. And I think you'll see why. 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wonderful. All scripture. Not some of scripture, not most of scripture, but all of scripture is inspired by God. Um, Some translations read, God breathed. And truly, if you don't believe that all scripture is God breathed, that's a hole that Satan can use. He can wiggle in there and he can fester. Um, And also, if you believe the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, you should have no trouble believing the rest of it. If God can speak everything we know into existence, out of nothing, bara, a creation out of nothing. If he can do that, ah, it's no problem. He can use a big fish to swallow Jonah, keep him alive for three days, and spit him up on another shore. That's that's not a big deal. He created the big fish. He knit together that big fish. Certainly he can direct it and use it to accomplish something that he wants to be accomplished. The salvation of others. Surely he can do that. And it's dangerous when you give someone else the authority that only scripture should possess. If I'm able to tell you, this part of scripture is given by inspiration of God, but this part of scripture is not. This is just something extra. That gives me the power that the scripture should contain in itself. 
I don't want that power. I don't want that on me. That is literally saying that I am inspired by the Holy Spirit more so than the writers of the Bible. And that is not true. So let the scripture be the scripture. Let it be the word of God. Um, We have to be careful not to dismiss certain parts of it. And since I mentioned Jonah, um, we'll talk about Jonah, but you can't dismiss this story. Jesus treated it as a historical event. And Jesus confirmed the account of Jonah, Matthew 12, 40, if you're interested. And if Jesus is confirming this story, I think we would do well to take it as historical fact as well. Um, I don't want to be in disagreement with Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We see doctrine again. Okay, Our doctrine should be taken from scripture. Period. Find your doctrine in the inspired scripture. For reproof, reproof is evidence, basically. Why do you believe what you believe? Scripture is its own evidence. We see prophecies. We looked at some prophecy this morning. Now, there's a lot more prophecy than this. We've only tickled the surface. But you go down and you look at the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah to come, using the lamb in the Passover as a type for Jesus. You see all of these things that are laid out beforehand about future events. That is a watermark of the Holy Spirit on this text. That is how we know that no one confounded by time could have possibly wrote this. It had to have come from outside of our space-time continuum. It's fascinating. Correction for instruction in righteousness. Now, it is interesting, and I wanted to note this in case you want to do any further uh, looking into this, but it's interesting to compare the uses of the Bible laid out here in this verse with the order of the epistles in the New Testament. Okay, I'll run through them real quick. You have doctrine in Romans. You have reproof in First and Second Corinthians. You have correction in Galatians. You have instruction in righteousness in Ephesians and Colossians. I thought that was fascinating. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Uh, your translation may read perfect in place of my complete. Uh, the perfect does not mean sinless. Okay, We're not saying that anyone is sinless, but the word complete gives us a better sense of the word. But it's basically saying that this man of God is fit for use or mature. He has become mature through the scripture. And there really is no way around it. To mature in your walk with Christ, you have to read the Bible. You cannot listen to other preachers, even preaching the Bible, and that will help, but you need to get in the Bible for yourself. Expound these things. Let the Spirit talk to you as you're reading through his word. 
let him speak to you. That is how we produce mature Christians. It's not by listening to televangelists. It's it's by getting in the word of God. That the man of God may be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The great need among churches today um, and, and Christians is to return to the scripture, return to the Bible. If the churches and if we as Christians making up the church don't turn back to God's word, these deceivers that Paul talks about, the spiritual snake oil salesmen, are going to have a heyday because we are not equipped to defend against those false miracles that they're showing us. We must equip ourselves by staying in the word. And millions of lost people will be deceived if it is not for the word of God. Um, And our mission as a church is to get the word of God out there. We want to build robust Christians. We want to mature Christians. And that is my heart's desire. And with that, I think that we can wrap up this morning. We finished chapter three. Lord willing, next week we'll start chapter four. But we are going to wrap up there and we will close in a word of prayer and be dismissed.